0: And I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, having studied Romans 5 through 8, that it is God's will that you have blessed assurance of your, your salvation. So open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. We're just going to introduce this section today as we begin our fall ministry season we also start this new section in Romans. If you've not been with us, we've been walking verse by verse through the book of, of Romans. And, and what we're coming upon right now is a massively encouraging portion. I mean, If you were with us and you found Romans 1 through 4 helpful, but maybe challenging, maybe at times even depressing as God forced us to look our sin in the face, you will find Romans 5 through 8 equally assuring in the other direction because it is all about the, the blessed assurance that we now possess as, as Christians. We were once alienated from God and hostile toward Him, but now that we have been justified by Christ, the Bible tells us that we have peace with God. I heard a, a quote this past week in a sermon on this, on this section of Scripture, and it was from Winston Churchill. And Churchill said, those who can win a war well can rarely make a good peace. And those who could make a good peace would never have won the war. (laughs) Churchill had a number of pithy little sayings like that. And the preacher that quoted that said, that's not true with God. He not only can make war, but he can also make peace well. And Paul tells us that God was at war with, with, with sinners, that, that would be us. And, and while he was once at war, now he showers them with, with present and future blessings. And those present and future blessings are outlined over the next four chapters, which we're, we're just about, we're standing on the edge of the pool about to dive in. Now, now Paul wrote this letter to a, a literal church. He didn't write a systematic theology, even though Romans is probably the the closest thing we have in the in the New Testament. So you have to be careful with some of these hard edges on, on an outline. But Paul did write in a very organized and coherent way. And his, you remember his purpose was to explain the gospel that he's preaching. So he goes into detail and, and he lays it out in a methodical way. And he also proactively answers some common uh, obstacles or objections to it that he's heard over his over his missionary journeys, this letter was written toward the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. He wants to go into Spain, beyond where his, his three missionary journeys have taken him. So he lays it out because he's done that. This letter can be outlined, and it can be outlined in eight parts. There was the introduction that we've already went through uh, to the gospel. Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of this gospel that I'm about to preach to you. It's the power of God unto salvation." And then he goes into man's universal need for it. That was the, the long grind down into the dungeon where we saw the, the three individuals there. And then the exclusive solution that we just came out of, the, the, the gospel of God's righteousness is the exclusive solution to man's need. And now we're about to begin in Romans 5.1 with a believer's assurance because of the, the gospel of God's righteousness. What... What comes after that is a defense of the gospel related to Israel and then the transforming power. Um, you're not to be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your minds and the example of preaching. And then doxology, uh, praise and glory to God for, for the gospel of his, his righteousness. As I said, chapter 5, though, begins this, this new section, which is all about the blessings that, that come from the gospel that, that Paul preaches and so starting in chapter 5, stretching all the way through, through chapter 8, Paul outlines all of the promises and privileges that we have because we have now been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, he'll tell us that we have peace and grace and hope with God and eternal life because Christ was the, was the last Adam. In, in chapter 6, he'll, he'll tell us we're dead to sin and alive to God. Sin no longer is our master. He'll declare that we're free from the law and its penalty in, in Romans 7. And one day we'll even be free from this body of death. The things that I desire to do, I, uh, I, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And Paul ends chapter 7 with, you know, who will free me from this body of death? That's coming. And then finally in chapter 8, It described the new life that we now possess in the Holy Spirit. I mean, this uplifting section of chapter 8 ends with this immovable confidence that nothing can separate us from from those things uh, in the the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if you studied Romans before, you may have heard this section is about sanctification. Uh, Part of it is about salvation. Part of it is about sanctification. The simple outline, the very memorable outline that I've heard before from Romans. You know, chapter 1 through 3 is about sin. 4 and 5 is about salvation. 6 through 8, sanctification. 9 through, through 11 is sovereignty. Again, very memorable because they're all S's. But the text actually bears out some, some additional details that, that would tweak this a bit. I mean, we just saw that chapter 4 was about salvation, by faith alone, specifically about the Old Testament saints. Abraham and and David, they were saved by grace through faith, just like you are. And that simple outline puts those details uh, in the salvation section. But as I'm going to show you, chapter 5 of Romans clearly begins a new section. And you're going to see that this new section that sets the theme in chapter 5 continues through chapter 6, 7 and then reinforces that same theme in chapter 8 is not primarily about sanctification but the justified assurance that we now have in in Christ. And you can see that, this natural break that that begins in chapter 5. Look look at chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's past tense... We have peace with God, that's present tense, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the one who, in whom we're justified. So Paul starts with, with therefore and, and declares what, he, what he's about to say is, is because of something that happened to us in the past, something that he's actually been talking about for four chapters, this, this justification that's been described, inter, introduced in chapter 1, and then he, he, he just blows it out at the end of chapter 3 and, and chapter 4. Rick Holland said the, the word therefore is like an equals sign in, in the Bible. It, it tells us that whatever is on one side of the equation, you should expect an answer coming, a, a conclusion. And when you see that word, you should think there's, a, there's an application or a result of the truth that, that was just laid. And, and so Paul says in verse 1, therefore, and, and he repeats the equation, Here's the equation. This is on the first side of the equal sign. Having been justified by faith, that equals something. What's the result of the fact that we have been, past tense, justified by, by faith alone? Well, notice the next two words. It says, We have peace with God. And, and then with that, he begins a, a list of, of several things. We now possess certain things. We. Those are blessings, and those blessings are possessions that that come from justification. And notice one more significant detail here. Note the timing related to these new spiritual possessions that Paul wants to outline for us. Look, if you would, at verse 2. It says, Through whom we also have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. So there's repetition throughout this whole chapter. In verse 1, he said, because we have been justified or having been justified, we have, we now have certain possessions. Verse 2, we have obtained, there's another possession, noting all new blessings. And these present possessions are because we've been justified, they're obtained already, they're currently ours. And then in verse 2, he says, we exalt in hope also because we've been justified. That's our future, future glorification. That's something yet to happen. But Paul says we're currently assured of it because we have been justified. Having been justified, we we have a future hope that we're going to be made like Him in in glory. And These are just three of the the blessings of salvation that, that are enjoyed because we have been justified. We have peace with God, we stand in grace, and we rejoice in the in the hope of sharing in His glory. And all of these spiritual possessions, some in the present and then some in the future, are listed here. But are you ready for this? There are four chapters of these blessings that Paul's going to go over. Each detailed for us, each assuring us that we're right with God, all because of that that initial event, all because we have been justified by God Through Jesus Christ, you remember uh, Paul ends the discussion, uh, or I mean the, uh, yeah, the discussion of chapter four, saying these things have been written for us uh, for our justification. Look back at how chapter four ends. Look back at chapter four, verse twenty-three. Paul says, "Now not for our sake only was it written that it was credited to him." He's talking about Abraham. It was written not just for Abraham, but for our sake also. It was written, to whom it will be credited, those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. Paul says, Genesis 15 in the Old Testament, about Abraham's faith being reckoned unto him for, for righteousness, that was written for us. It was written for him. It was also written for us as well. We share the same basis of of salvation with Old Testament saints, which is faith alone. We share the same object of, uh, of faith, the God of heaven. We, we trust in the same, the same promises of God, the God who raises the dead and who does what, what he says. But while Abraham had a promise, we have a fulfilled gospel. Christ has now come. I mean, Abraham had an anticipation of what God would do, and he placed his faith in God, what what God would do, but we have the news of what God has accomplished already in Christ. and That's how he ends chapter 4. And so now, springing like an Olympian diver from those words, Paul now takes that fulfillment to its next theological step in chapter 5, verse 1. He says justification is not... Not, not only the first blessing that, that God brings, it carries with it many more blessings. And for four chapters, he's going to lay out those, those blessings. In fact, justification carries with it every other blessing in the Christian life. I mean, that's how big of a deal it is whether you understand justification by faith alone. And that is, a, is something that, that, that's punctiliar, something that, that happens in, in a moment where, where God makes a judicial declaration about you because you have placed your faith in the work of Christ and God looks at him and credits his righteousness to you even though you're not righteous. And in that moment when you trust in Christ that, that the, the sin penalty is dealt with on the cross and, and the righteousness of Christ is, is credited to you and God says, not guilty righteous he treats you as if you have the righteousness of Christ even though he's not at that moment when when God does that then all of the other blessings with the Christian life flow with it it's not that that he justifies you and then he decides whether he's going to give you glorification it's not that he justifies you and then determines whether he's going to give you joy and peace and the Holy Spirit and all those things it's a package deal it it all comes together some of those are yours now present and some of those you hope for in the future, but they're all yours at the, at the very moment of, of justification. I mean, if you're not justified before God, declared right, then you have no access to any blessing. You're still at war with God, in fact, which is why Paul uses this term of peace. You're now at peace with God. If you're not justified before God, then, then you're out, outside of God's people. You're still his enemy. But if you have been justified by God, you have been declared in a permanent right standing with him, then you have glorification and peace and hope and joy and many more. They're all yours at the very moment that you're reconciled to him. And Paul says some of those blessings are present right now and others like future glorification come in the future, but they're already guaranteed because you've been justified. And for four chapters, Paul then methodically outlines those blessings. Alva J. McLean said, when a man is justified, he has everything that God has to give. The late Adrian Rogers said it this way, if God gave up his son for you, he won't withhold his bicycle. I mean, if he, if he gave his life, do you think that he'll withhold anything that, that, that could be ours in Christ? I mean, indeed he will not. I mean, he'd sacrifice his son, he would give you all the blessings that, that, that come along with it. I mean, to be justified means that you have now been declared right with God and he treats you as if you're right, completely right, even though sometimes you sin and even though they're still unredeemed flesh that, that you deal with. And nothing ever can alter that because the declaration that you're just is based on Christ and it happened at the moment that you believed upon him by faith and regeneration took place. And so Paul says that now that you're in that justified state, all the blessings that come to someone who is right with God are yours right now. Which is why the section's main theme is all about assurance instead of sanctification. I mean, you mentioned sanctification for Sure. But that's not the main topic. Paul's main concern, God's main concern, why this section was written was so that you would know that you're saved and that you would have no doubt about that. I mean, Paul wants you to nail that down once for all. I mean, how does God see us in the position that we have in in Jesus Christ? I mean, he wants to give us assurance. He wants to give you assurance. Did you ever think about that? That God wants His children to know that they're right with Him, if you are one of His children? I mean, you might say it this way. God wants genuine believers to know that they're secure in Christ, and never doubt that. But He wants those who are self-deceived to think no such thing. False convert. I mean, he wants that group to realize their need before it's too late, which is the whole reason that he puts Romans 2 in the Bible about moral people or religious people thinking that because somehow I smell right and look right and have the right Bible and, 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 and worship the right God by name, that somehow God's going to use that to overlook my, my sin, even though I do the same sin as the pagans of chapter 1. He, he puts that in there to say, no, you're also under the, the just judgment of God. But that same God wants genuine believers to be sure of their salvation. He wants them to feel secure. He wants them to know their names are written in the book of life. He doesn't want them to worry so they can focus all of their energies on enjoying Him and serving His Son. As you're sitting here this morning, you have to discern which camp you're in. I mean, if you're sincerely saved, then you have amazing security. But if you're the emperor in his new clothes, then, then you're wearing a, a paintball chest protector in front of a 50 caliber machine gun. I mean, you're wearing yoga pants as a brush guard facing a weed eater. The one-man raft facing a tidal wave, and that tidal wave is, is God's righteous raft. Let me show you this is all about assurance. Sh- I can show you that by how it begins and ends. So chapter 5 begins this section. Chapter 8 ends it, and the topics are exactly the same, all about you would have assurance. Look, look, if you would, at Romans 5, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, attention to the themes, the, the words, that, that, the different things that Paul talks about. Verse 2 through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character. Perseverance, this is a process of becoming like Christ, Christ Christ-like, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. And here's another one, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Here's another one, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So Paul begins this section, and he goes through verse 11. It's all about the, these blessings, this, this, this for our assurance or security in Christ. That's in chapter 5. That's how he begins it. Now turn over to chapter 8, verse 18, and let me show you how he ends it in exactly the same way. I won't have you read verse 1. We'll start in verse 18, but you know how Romans 8, 1 starts, Right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like you have peace with God because you have been justified by faith? You now have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have peace with God. That's how Romans 8, 1 begins. But look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You remember in chapter 5 talking about tribulation and how that builds hope and the glory of God? Right there it is. And look at verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's our glorification. We're going to be conformed to the image of Christ and notice what uh, Paul begins talking about peace and present sufferings and future hope and the, the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, and he does the same thing in chapter 5. And watch this, the famous gospel chain passage. He, he, notice that he jumps from glorification or justification to, to glorification. And those, verse 30, "...and those whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son," he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, now if you know doctrine at all, you know that there's something missing there, right? There's justification, the very penalty of sin removed. The penalty of your sin is gone and you're justified. And then sanctification, right? The power of sin is being dealt with in life. And then glorification, the the very presence of sin will be taken out. But Paul leaves out sanctification here. He says... He is predestined that you will be conformed to Christ's image. There's the hope of future glory. And he assures us because we have been justified, we will be glorified. Whom, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that it's, it's in the past tense, even though something's going to happen in the future. As a, I heard one friend of mine say, as he looked around the church and read that passage, you know that even though it's in the past tense, it's going to happen in the future because I don't see a lot of glorified people here. I mean, you're, you're not like Jesus yet. But he says those whom he justified, you are justified. He also glorified. You will be glorified. And he can state it as if it's done. And that's a blessing that comes because you have been justified. And it's just like he does in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation through whom we've also obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Oh man, grace, there's, there's calling and justification, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God, our, our glorification. What is the hope of the glory of God? It's that one day we'll be like Him. We have the hope of the glory of God. We have the hope of being glorified. And then in between justification and glorification, we have these many benefits, which Paul will talk about those as well which are tools that we can apply for our sanctification. I mean, things like we're no longer under the curse of death in chapter 5 because Christ's victory over Adam's failure, what Adam failed to do, what you failed to do, Jesus Christ accomplished. Like the fact that we're, we're dead to sin and alive to God in chapter 6. That's a tool to help you. That truth is to help you with your sanctification because grace conquered it. Things like you're, you're dead to the power of the law to condemn you in, in Romans 7 because grace through faith has triumphed over the law. And, of course, you know well how Romans 8 ends. Romans 8 gives us some of the most precious passages in all the Bible about our security. L- look at Romans eight thirty one. Watch how Paul summarizes from chapter 5 through chapter 8. Remember, chapter 5 begins the same way chapter 8 begins, but watch how he wraps it up in Romans eight thirty one, this is his conclusion to this section. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Well, the things he just got done immediately saying, but they drag all the way back from chapter 5. What shall we say to these things? Here's what we say. If God is for us, who can be against us? If we have peace with God, then who can we be at war with? Who, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all... How will he not freely give us his bicycle or freely give us all things, to quote Adrian Rogers? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. No one can. Who is the one who condemns? If God doesn't condemn, then who can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us? Can anything separate you from Christ? You secure in him? Who will separate us from the love of Christ, verse 35? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, peril or sword, all those things that build hope, those tribulations that we now rejoice in, can they separate us from it? No, because we're promised a future hope. And verse 38, I am convinced. I am assured. I am fully persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord paul's overarching theme is our absolute security we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ that's how he starts and there is nothing that will ever separate us from that peace. That's how he ends. And we have all of those blessings having been justified. Something happened to us in the past at salvation, and because of that we have present benefits, and we will be glorified in the future. That, that's a good summary of Romans 5-8. through I mean, if the book of Romans calls what, what, what we call it the Romans Road, then Romans 5 through 8 is the cardo. It's the main thoroughfare. If Romans was a NASCAR track, Romans 5 through 8 would be turn 4 in the straightaway. If Romans was a pie, chapter 5 through 8 would be the filling. I mean, it would be hard to underestimate, or understate, I should say, the significance of these four chapters, not only in the book of Romans but in the Bible. So today we're just introducing the theme you might think of it like a flyover so that when we actually parachute in and get down into all of the verses and the minutia, you won't get lost. Like a, It's like looking at the topographical map before you start hiking or, or an x-ray before you go in for, for surgery. It, you have to get the context, this context of assurance based on your justification in mind as you go through the passage so you don't get lost in the weeds. In Romans 5... 1 through 3 introduces it by giving us three introductory blessings that accompany justification. Peace, grace, and hope. Because I've been justified, I have a position of peace before God. Because I've been justified, I have a standing of grace. And because I've been justified, I have a future hope. We won't finish these but let's look at the first one. This will be seen again, so if you didn't get it down, you will in a minute. Three introductory blessings that accompany justification. We have a position of peace with God. Again, Romans chapter 5, verse, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, for four chapters, Paul has done a good job of showing us our guilt before a holy God. I mean, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 is the, is the umbrella passage. It introduces the, the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That, that introduces the topic of God's righteous wrath. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the, the power of God unto salvation and you need it because God's wrath is also revealed against sin and for chapter 1, 2, and 3, and you're a sinner no matter what category you fall in. Chapter 1, he showed us the the pagan immoral man was under righteous wrath. Chapter 2, the moral person's under righteous wrath. God is just, whether you're Jew or Gentile, pagan or religious, you're all under God's just wrath. And as one said it, Paul was so convincing and so forceful with these passages. Now in chapter 5, he follows up with some blessed assurance. I mean, Paul's under inspiration, so he's not thinking he overdid it. But Paul also knows the, the force of God's word, the force that that can have on the conscience of a, of a genuine believer. And Paul has been pressing the accelerator down there. So now, having torn us down for, for these things, Two and a half chapters, he's now going to build us up. And he's going to use four chapters to to do that. I mean, you can understand that if you think about it. I mean, you were at war with God. I mean, better yet, he was at war with you. Your heart and your mind had enmity toward, toward God. You didn't like the light. You hated the light because your deeds were evil. But now, in salvation... You've been rendered to a state of peace with God. And Paul wants us to know how God thinks about an enemy soldier that once fought on the other side who's now now at peace. He's not kept in a a prison camp. He's walking around amongst the other troops. And that's you. I mean, how does God see you now? You were once his enemy. You were now once in the kingdom of darkness. Now you're in the kingdom of his dear son. I mean, does he he keep one eye on you the whole time? I mean, is there some type of provisional acceptance as long as you do the right thing? You're in, but but I'm going to watch you. And now do you have to earn your stripes now that you're in the Lord's army? I mean, does salvation just kind of get you in the door and and then you have to earn the blessings as you go? Like you you climb climb the ladder? That's often the way we think. I mean if someone was our enemy sworn enemy and we were we were against them we we even nursed these these thoughts and feelings about about how evil they are and and that person comes to you they lay down their arms they ask for parley and I mean what would you do I mean if you granted them a pardon then that's a big if wouldn't you watch them maybe be a little suspect you surely wouldn't just give them the keys to your house and your car and, and, and everything else, but is that the way God does with us? I mean, and maybe the worse you were before you came to Christ, the more sin and the more wicked you were, maybe the more, that's the more suspect that God remains toward you now that, now that you're, you're in Christ. Is that what Paul's saying here? Not at all. Chapter 5.1, Paul uses an heiress participle, to justify, having been justified by by faith, showing it's a completed act. And this completed act and this completed fact that you have been justified is now the basis for all the other blessings experienced by, by believers. And all those blessings are right now in the present. And that right now standing also is the basis that provides our future hope. Now, I'll tell you, if these passages, this passage, this statement, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, that's not going to mean very much to you unless you understand and embrace chapter 1, 2, and, and the beginning of 3, which explains our condition in God's justice. I mean, you, you, you're not going to think much about peace if you don't realize the war or or the condition that, that you were in. But if you do, if you've actually gone through the process of knowing and sensing and feeling that God's your enemy and that you're condemned, and like David said, his hand was, was heavy upon me and, and pressed on me night and day, it, what's called conviction of sin. If you have experienced that, then these are these are wonderful words. These are sweet words. These are assuring words. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, well, I didn't know I was at war with God. I mean, ask anybody on the street, are you at war with God? And I would say most of them would, would, would say, I don't, I don't feel like I am. I don't think I am. So I would say, no, I'm not at war with God. God's a good guy. Just as long as he does good stuff for me, I have no problem with God. That's, that's how people typically think. But the Bible says you are, whether you feel like you're at war or not. John MacArthur said most unsaved people don't think themselves as enemies of God because they have no conscious feelings of hatred for Him. And they don't actively oppose His work. They consider themselves, at worst, to be neutral about God. But no such neutrality is possible. The mind of every unsafe person is at peace only with the things of the flesh, and therefore, by definition, their minds are hostile toward the things of God, and they cannot do otherwise. And I said even worse than all that. Your problem, if you're outside of Christ, is not that you're at war with God. It's that God's at war with you. Psalm 711, Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge. And a God who has indignation every day. Do you know who he's indignant with every day? Sinners. All of them. No matter how great they are or how less they are. Verse 12, if a man does not repent, he, that's God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. The the bow is drawn. And it's only God's long-suffering mercy that that keeps his, his fingers on the string. And at some point, he's going to release the string. In fact, the wrath of God abides, the New Testament says, on the sons of disobedience. Whether unbelievers feel that or not, or realize that or not. Just as unbelievers, though, may not realize that they're at war, believers may also fail to grasp they're at peace and have the blessings, the reality that they're at peace with God. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how this assurance is described. Notice it does not say we have the peace of God. It says we have peace with God. And that peace comes from our justification. Or say it another way, this is objective assurance, not subjective feeling. It's assurance based on a fact. Having been justified, you now in this state of justification... You, are, you have peace with God. God's at peace with you. Which is why you may have it and not, and not experience it in the way you think. Well, I don't have a lot of peace. I, I'm in a lot of turmoil. I don't have a lot of assurance. Sometimes I doubt. That's the difference between the peace of God and peace with God. One is objective from the outside. It's a positional peace. And the other is subjective. It's from the inside. It's a sense of inner calm. And and believers have both. Paul talks about both. You know when he talks about the other, a peace of God, in Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's the peace of God, that inner sense of calm that comes from casting your burdens on the Lord in, in prayer and then trusting that He'll answer and, and bear them up. That, that peace comes and that peace goes, which is why we're told to pray. Things can come in our life and knock us around. Anxiety can come, and so what do we do? We go in prayer and we receive the peace of God. The peace of God is telling ourselves, reminding ourselves the truth, God is sovereign. There's nothing that's going to happen in my life that... that he You you tell yourself a number of things. And if the worst thing happens, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'm going to heaven. Peace of God comes. That's not what Romans 5.1 is talking about. Romans 5.1 is talking about a fact. It's a position that we're at peace with God. We're no longer at war. And that's vital for you to understand. Because objective peace leads to this subjective assurance, this sense that I am right with God. I mean, knowing you're right with God leads to feeling you're right with God and enjoying it. And I would say that there are at least a few of you in here this morning that may struggle with that. And if so, Romans 5, 1 was written to you just like Genesis 15 was written to you as well. Because God wants you to have assurance. He wants you to have assurance that because you've been justified, the war is over, hostilities have ceased once for all, and, and you might not be enjoying some of the, some of the gifts and blessings that, that are yours be, because you're ignorant of them or you, you, you fail to believe this. And yet God wants you to enjoy all of them, so he wrote... Romans chapter five through eight to you. Now think about that. Think about what had to go into the Apostle Paul, being under the inspiration of the Spirit, to pen this letter, and this letter get to Rome, and and then and then be declared something recognized as, as scripture, and it be passed down all the way to today, in August in twenty 2020, twenty you twenty twenty two, so that you can have assurance. That's what God wants for you. That's how much He cares that you would have this. But if you're a religious hypocrite or a pretender who's trying to convince themselves or others or even God that you're okay while living a a wicked life, God wants no such thing for you. God wants you to know the way of a transgressor is hard. And He wants you to be troubled. Which is why he wrote the law in your heart and why you have a conscience to begin with. You say, well, how do I know? How do I tell which I am? Which, which one I am? Well, you go to the objective truths of the Bible and then you evaluate yourself by them. You don't evaluate it by your feelings. I mean, don't go to feelings first. They'll deceive you, but the Bible won't. So you go to the scriptures and say, what does the Bible say is the evidence? Of salvation. What, what are those things in Scripture? And, and, and when you do you'll find fellowship with God. Do you have fellowship with, with God? First John, most of these are in First John. Is there a sensitivity to sin in your life? I mean do you, do you confess it? Do you acknowledge it? Do you duck and cover? It? Do you say you don't have any sin at all? That, that's not the evidence of a believer believer says the same thing about themselves that God does. Christians are are not without sin. Christians are the only ones that are honest about their sin. They confess it. You have a desire to obey God's word? You know this one, if you love me, keep my commandments. Will you keep them perfectly? No, but you have a desire to if you're a genuine believer. You didn't have that desire at all before you were saved. I could care less what God commanded me. I just wanted to to stay out of hell and the Lord to give me blessings and, and be and, and just keep clear of me in my life. Is there an opposition to the world in your life? I'm not really sure. Which side am I on? What, what are these things in your life? Is there an opposition to the world? Love not the world, or the things of the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Is there a, a decreasing pattern of sin in your life. That doesn't mean less, are sinless, but, but, but you're acknowledging your sin. You have fellowship with God because you've been made right with Him in Christ. You have a sensitivity to your sin. You, you acknowledge it. There's a desire to continue to obey God and flee sin. You're, you're not attracted to it, the things of the world. And then there's a decreasing pattern of sin in your life. And it says nothing about how How much? It just says there's a decreasing pattern. There's a desire to learn more about God. That's an evidence of salvation. 1 Peter 2, you probably know that. You you long for, you yearn for the sincere milk of the word. You you genuinely desire to learn more about God? I mean, I could care, care less about God. I didn't want to read the Bible or anything else, but now I have a hunger for it. How about a love for other believers? I mean, do you want to be in church? Do you want to be around other Christians? Are you more comfortable around Christians than you are worldlings? Well, that's an evidence that you're saved. Discernment between spiritual truth and error. Believers may get off track every now and then if they're not equipped, like Ephesians 4 says, but but a a genuine believer will, will be able to tell truth from error. An unbeliever follows all the false teachers and psychiatry and all of the other anti-biblical things. And, and, and a true believer is able to discern what, what's truth and what's, what, what's error. And the one that we don't like really well, but is probably the greatest blessing of the list, discipline from God, Hebrews 12, 3. This is the passage about illegitimate children. When you sin, are you disciplined by God? Does he care about you like a, like a father does a child? Does he spiritually spank you? Well, you look at all those evidences that, that, that are there and you consider, is there any fruit of those, those things in, in my life? All of these objective truths that are in Scripture, do I see any fruit of those in my life? And you know, I want you to notice that all of them are, are things that you can't fake. There's something that you can't produce. I mean, you can't fake a desire to obey God. You you can't fake a genuine love for the church or a a true hunger to know what Scripture says. You can't fake discipline for for sin. You you say, well, I have so much doubt that I don't have very much fruit, and I'm always worried about my standing with with, with God. So as I look at that list... uh, that doesn't even help me. I mean, I think I see some of those things there, but then I just get thrust back into, into anxiety and concern about whether I'm right with God or not. And I would say to you that if, if that's true, then that in and of itself is an evidence of God's work. Do you remember Romans chapter 3? you remember how Paul ends that section of sinfulness, this un, the universal condemnation? you remember Romans 3? When he says, There's none that understands, there's none that seeks after God. The very fact that you're concerned, the very fact that you're seeking after God, you're concerned that you're not right with Him, is an evidence of God's love and care for you. That's an evidence of God's work in you. That surely doesn't come from the devil. He doesn't want you to be concerned about whether you're right with God. It surely doesn't come from your own flesh. So if that concern is there, accompanied with even the smallest amount of those desires that I listed, it's a, it's a good sign that you're a believer. And if that's true and you're racked with doubt, there's likely some besetting sin that you're hiding or you're nursing or you don't know the truth that well. And the wonderful thing about both of those is that that both of them can be remedied. You you can repent of sin and you can grow in your understanding of of the truth. But you have to do that. Or you'll struggle with assurance for the rest of your Christian life. I mean, inner assurance is a gift from the Lord. It, It comes whenever we when we're pursuing the Lord and doing those things. It has nothing to do with our position of peace. That's secured in Christ. But, but this sense of assurance and this, this awareness and the experiencing of the blessings, even though we have them, comes when we're walking with the Lord. You shouldn't have any assurance if you're in hidden sin. And you won't have any assurance if there's no wood to burn because you're not growing. You're not growing. It's the gift of those seeking the Lord and His word, but it's based upon the bedrock fact that having been justified, you have peace with God. Do you? you have peace with God? Is the war over? Do you know that? Have you laid down your arms and bowed the knee before Jesus Christ? Until you do that, you will know No peace. But if you have, all of those blessings that we talked about this morning and all those that are coming in chapter 5 through 8 are yours in Him. I want to end this way this morning. Why don't you just bow your heads and close your eyes. Um, I'll pray in just a minute. But before we do, I want to ask you to ask yourself some questions. I want you to evaluate the answers. How do you know? Well, have you ever experienced communion with God and Christ? Do you now? I mean, when the Word is preached, ask yourself, or I'm around other believers, does that make me uncomfortable or joyful? Do I have a love for God that draws you to His presence? Uh, Have I experienced the 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 sweet sweet communion of prayer, the the exhilarating joy of talking to the living God? Uh, Ask yourself, have I I experienced a change of relationship with God? I mean, I was once fearful, unsure about approaching Him, and now I have a sense of grace that leads me to draw near. What about... uh, I I am very much aware of the spiritual battle raging within me. Is there a battle in there at all? That's a good thing. You didn't have a battle at all before. Do I realize that I have communion with God and because of that a holiness must be pursued? I can't walk in darkness and claim to have fellowship with Him? Am I willing to confess and forsake sin in my life? Do I have a desire to obey the word? out of love for Christ? Do, do I see the, that desire producing an overall pattern of obedience? Do I reject what the world says? Do I reject false religions and human idolati, idol, uh, ideologies and godless living and vain pursuits? Instead, do I, I love God, His truth, His kingdom, what all that stands for? Do I see victory? there's sin in my life do I, do I see righteous motives righteous desires righteous words righteous deeds as I look at my life what flows from the core of my heart sin or righteousness do I read the word I mean, is there really a genuine desire in my heart to know more about God is there a yearning to pursue righteousness do I rejoice in the truth do I love it or is the Bible boring to me do I dislike the truth Do I love being around other Christians or feel more at home around worldlings? Do I have a love for them that draws me to their presence? Have I experienced the sweet communion of prayer and the exhilarating joy of talking to the living God and the blessing of being with His people? Within the answers to those questions resides heaven and hell. God wants you to have heaven in Jesus Christ. And if you have heaven in Jesus Christ, He wants you to know about it for sure. Because if you've been justified, having been justified, you have peace with God and all the other blessings that flow. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your truth and how you write it to us that we might be able to have assurance with you. We also thank you, Father, for we breaking our false assurance. And so I pray for everyone here this morning, those that, that might be outside, those that might be outside of Christ that have no, no experiential assurance. That's good. I pray that you would use that to draw them to yourself. I pray for any genuine Christian that may be in hidden sin, that you would allow that, that nagging doubt to draw them to confession that they might be useful to you. And I pray for any weak believer that might have a sensitive conscience that genuinely desires to serve you, that you would assure them even this morning that that genuine desire is from you and that they're yours. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.